Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you. It's always such a pleasure to be here and see all my old friends. And yeah, we send love from Melkbos. Remember, we won church, three locations, so Camps Bay, Tableview, and Melkbos. So if you are new with us, we'll let you know that we're part of a bigger church that's reaching community. And it's really good to be here with you. Um, I trust God's going to speak to you this morning. I pray that the Bible actually says that we're two or more gathered. So the presence of the Holy Spirit. So I don't trust that I speak to you this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit speaks to you in such a quiet, intimate moment that allows you to receive what God has for you this morning. And I pray He's going to do something mighty in your heart. So let's, uh, let's trust Him this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God. We thank you that your presence and your power is present with us right now, Father God. And even as we slow down this moment, Father God, as we've worshipped you, Father God, and brought down the walls and everything that's sitting and hardened around our lives, Father God, we've created soft soil. And we pray that your word become a seed sown into our hearts, Lord, that will take root and activate, Father God, everything that you have in store for us, but that we may activate your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, look to the person next to you and just say, you're in the best place as you take your seats this morning. You're in the best place. You're in the house of God. You're in a place where God's going to move this morning. I'm so pumped. For all of our new people, I'm so glad that you guys have joined us. You've actually joined us on our second week of our series called Running with the Giants. And if you've ever read uh, the Heroes of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, I encourage you to go read them. But it says that those, those, those giants of faith are like, they're in a stadium and they're like witnesses for us and they're cheering us on as we continue to to run the race. So even as you sit here this morning, you are being cheered on by these giants that we're going to be talking about using their character from their lives and making it applicable in our lives. And so this morning, uh, we are in our second week, and I'm going to be talking on Esther this morning. I initially wanted to talk on Abraham, and God changed that last minute, and I believe that God doesn't do anything by accident when He does that on a preacher's heart. It's because there's somebody here this morning that needs to receive that message in Jesus' name. And so the title this morning is The Power in a Predecision. The Power in a Predecision. I want to challenge you this morning uh, to make some changes. I don't need you to make any big changes or any big decisions, but I want to challenge you through this message this morning to make a small change, and hopefully that will make a big difference in your life. And so we're going to be reading out of 1 uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 9. If you have your Bibles, you can follow with me. If you don't, you can sit next to a Christian and follow the neighbor. No, I'm joking. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. The word is up on the screen, and you can read with me, and it says this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. I'm going to ask you to pause that scripture, and we're going to come back to it towards the end of the service. But I want you to just let that piece of scripture soak in as we continue to go through the message today. Decision making. How many of you make decisions every day? Come on, show of hands. How many of you make decisions? That's great. Decision making can be like a mental exercise though. And just like physical exercise, sometimes the more we do physical exercise by the end, look, we've got some buff guys here. By the end of your training session, you feel a bit fatigued. Even though you're stronger and you've put some energy into it, you still get fatigued. 
And so decisions work the same way. They like mental exercises, but the more decisions you make over a smaller period of time, the more you get fatigued over time. You see, it's harder to make good, uh, it's harder to make good decisions after you've just made a lot of decisions. Have you ever been there? We've, you've had to make a lot of decisions, and you feel like, oh, I'm just not going to decide on that today. Well, that, that, I think, over time affects your willpower. And it turns out that willpower is also like a muscle, and similar to a muscle in your body, willpower can get fatigued. When you do those reps at gym, you can see my biceps are nowhere near rep quality, but when you're doing those reps at gym, towards the end of the session, you feel tired and fatigued, and it feels like your willpower starts to fade a little. And so uh, there's a paradox in that, in decision-making, because uh, people who lack choices seem to want to have more decision. They'll even fight for it. But at the same breath, people find that making many decisions can be psychologically adverse sometimes. I'll give you an example. I used to work for the TFG, and uh, we, um, we used to sell denims. And I remember we, we hit this one denim brand and it was really doing well. Sales were climbing up. We had three styles. We had a skinny jean, we had a straight leg, and we had a bootleg. And they continued to do well. And in retail, if any retailer is sitting here, you'll know the terminology test, bump, roll. So you test the denim, you bump it up, and you roll it out. Okay? And so we were cooking with gas until some of us got this epiphany, let's get more options. Let's get different types of cuts and different colors and everything. Do you know the minute we put more options into our stores, we started to make less money? Why? Well, it's the same reason you walk to pick and pay and you struggle to buy toothpaste because there's a whole entire aisle dedicated to different brands that do the same thing. And why? It's because nobody was willing to make a decision, so they made no decision. And I think sometimes when we get decision, when you have to make too many decisions, you just kind of fade out and don't make a decision. Do you know stats prove this? Research has proved this, that judges on a parole board, uh, if you ever have to go before parole, I pray you guys don't, but if you ever have to, they say that the, your best chances are actually in the morning for the judge to make the decision because what happens throughout the course of the day is the judge gets fatigued and they start to deny people parole. Why do they do this? It's because they get decision fatigued. And rather than make the wrong decision, they just make no decision. And so the analogy of parents, you guys would understand from lockdown, as much as we're trying to limit our kids playing on devices, okay, in lockdown, I was bad. <laughs> I don't know how many of you made lots of decisions in lockdown. You couldn't leave the house. You just had to think of everything all the time. Like your brain was like overthought. And then as you come and your kid comes there all the time, can I, can I play now? No, you can't. Can I play now? No, you can't. But now you're trying to get work done. You're just like, just take the device and go play. Why? Because you have decision fatigue. It sets in. Let me give you an example from the Gospels. Do you remember the time and the circumstances around Jesus' arrest? You know that moment where, where the, the disciples scatter and Peter denies Jesus three times? I want to, I'm not excusing any of the disciples here, but I want to just do a bit of a prelude as what happened, what were the circumstances as the lead up to that event? Um, 
It's interesting to unpack those circumstances because Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that. And it actually, I think that the time that they would have prayed is when the sun went down. And if you add the dinner, it's about two hours. So you can imagine that these disciples were asked to stand and pray. Okay. Jesus went away and he came back. And what were they doing? They were sleeping. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't take a rocket science to work out that if you are sleeping (laughs) on two occasions getting bust, you're fatigued, you're tired. And maybe some of the decisions that were made post that whole entire event was the fact that they were decisioned fatigued. Maybe they were making it in a tired space. Have any of you ever made a decision that was wrong in a tired space? Retailers do it to you all the time. We stick the chocolates right at the, the checkout desk because we know you t- you're decision fatigued while you've done your shopping, and then we call that impulse. And so sometimes decision fatigue gets us to decide things on impulse. Uh, Judges aren't exempt from this, disciples aren't exempt, and actually none of you are exempt from this. All of us experience this same thing. You know, according to research, it says that we make up to 35,000 decisions every single day. 35,000 decisions every single day. And the question, of course, is how do we make good decisions? That's what I want to talk about today. You see, I want to talk about how we make good decisions, and I truly believe that good decisions are pre-decisions. They're the decisions you decide before you decide the decision. Seashells, seashells on the seashell. You know that uh, pre-decision, they say that there's like literally four steps if you are in decision fatigue. Do these things. Pre-decide what you stand for and you don't stand for. Because if you don't stand for something, you fall for everything. So pre-decide what your decisions are. Certain things that you're not going to move on. The other thing that you do is you make your decisions first thing in the morning. If you're a morning person, make your decisions first. So your brain is still activated to make those decisions. The other thing is stop making decisions and stop making commitments. A lot of us just want to make a lot of decisions, but nobody wants to commit to anything. And the last thing is to simplify. Now, I love the story of simplify because have any of you ever looked at a picture of Steve Jobs? He always wears the same thing. (laughs) He's got like a turtleneck with those round glasses, blue jeans, and New Balance tackies. Do you know that he did that on purpose? Because his entire wardrobe was just filled of that. Barack Obama only ever wore one suit. Do you know why they purposely did that? to eliminate the amount of decisions they have to make. They, they didn't want to decide what they would have to wear because they wanted the bandwidth to make important decisions. I wonder how many of us get decision to fatigue just before you leave the house after you've gotten dressed in the morning. Where's the socks? That sock doesn't match that sock. Like, I, mean, I know all you sock people there. I'm a sock person myself. I'm like, I am the only person in my house that buys socks. I don't know, I'm, like, I'm like, where's my socks? My son's like running on the soccer field with my socks. I'm like, now you know why I don't wear socks. <laughs> Guys, if you're taking some notes this morning, I'd love you to write this down, is you are one decision away from totally a different life. You're one decision away from a different life, and that is good news. So let's quickly look at a few ways how this pre-decision played out in the Bible with some of the giants of faith. You know, Joseph made a pre-decision after he was sold into slavery for 13 years. He, he He met Potiphar's wife, who continues to keep hitting on him. 
and she keeps wanting to take him to bed. But he made a predecision that he would never have sex with somebody who was never his wife. That was a predecision. He made a predecision that he was never going to falter on. He, um, in Genesis chapter 39, verses 10, it says this, And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her uh, and even be with her. Listen, if you don't make a predecision, and you're only making your decisions up until the, par- the point that you're going to be tempted, you're in trouble. If you haven't pre-decided those things and you're only making those decisions right up until the moment you're being tempted, you're in trouble. But Joseph made a pre-decision that he would not do that. And because of this pre-decision, Joseph obviously goes on to get arrested and put in prison. uh, But he then interprets a dream and then ends up saving two nations from from famine. Why? If you boil it all back down, it's because he made a pre-decision. He stood for something. Ruth made a predecision in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16. It actually says this, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. This is the decision that Ruth made to her mother-in-law. She made a decision. She stood for something. If she had not made that decision, she wouldn't have met Boaz, who was the lineage, to David, who was the lineage to Jesus. But I think the true lineage goes back to the time that Ruth made a predecision. These are things that she's going to stand for. Daniel makes a predecision when he decides not to eat anything that's unkosher and defile his body. Now, it might seem like a small, silly, insignificant thing, but it was that predecision that set him up to be second in charge in Babylon in one of the most powerful countries of the ancient world. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make a predecision they will not bow down to any other god. And even if they were thrown into the furnace and they said, even if God doesn't save us, still will we serve him. How many of you in your tests and your trials and your temptation, you go, still will I serve him, even if he doesn't come through? They made a predecision. Predecision. And the list goes on. You know, there's a thought. Destiny is actually not a mystery. Destiny is a choice. It's about 35,000 choices a day. So what are you choosing? What are you deciding to choose on? And here's a thought I want to put up. Predecisions will determine your destiny and determine your legacy. Esther's predecision determined her destiny, but also the legacy that two, uh, thousands of years later, we are still talking about the characteristic, the move that she made because of a predecision. Esther made a predecision to risk her life, to plead for the people of Israel. She single-handedly saved the Jewish people from genocide with these words, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to do it. How many of us make those decisions with God? Even in our, when we've been faced with things, do we, do we struggle to make those decisions? You see, I believe that Esther's pre-decision was setting up a boundary line. She was putting a boundary line on what was okay and not okay. She was putting up a boundary line. How many of you have boundaries for your, your marriage? Men, if you are busy consulting and counseling women, you're in a dangerous place. Set up a boundary on that. Women, if you're counseling men, you're in a dangerous place. Set up a boundary on that. What are the things you're going to stand for or you're going to fall for everything? I believe Esther, by making a predecision, set up a boundary line. Just as when we did the missions trip to Zambia, we had to cross the border. You see, the border keeps 
keeps things different. It keeps out the things that are bad and keeps and protects the things inside that are good. Are you in God's boundary line? Church, I'm going to ask you today, are you, as you sit here, can you confidently say, I'm in God's boundary line? Because if you're not, you can make a small decision (laughs) that makes a big impact. Proverbs 22 verses 28 says, Don't stealthily move back the boundary line staked out long ago by your ancestors. If you don't make a pre-decision and you just leave temptation or um, impulse decisions to happen in your Christian walk, I want to let you know you're going to move back your boundary line. You're going to go, it's not okay, but it's just a small thing. I'm just going to step into that little small thing. Trust me, you're going to start to move the boundary lines and one day you're going to wake up in territory that God never intended you to be in. So I encourage you, make a pre-decision, set up a boundary of what God's principles are for your life. And I believe Esther did that in the way that she lived out her life. And so to tell you the story today, I'm going to have to paraphrase because it's a very interesting, phenomenal book to go read. So I encourage you to read it on your own time. But I'm going to paraphrase before I get into the scripture up until the scripture point that I'm going to preach on today. And, but before I do that, I have to introduce you to our cast for the movie today. And so the first person you'll meet is King Xerxes. King Xerxes is the mighty Persian king. He is the husband and the queen of Esther. Persia was Southwest Asian country. The Persian Empire was a series of empires, okay, uh, which occupied what is known today as Afghanistan or Iran. It was a massive empire. Xerxes was no weak guy. He was a strong guy. But what does the Bible tell us about Xerxes in the matter of the story? Is that he was easy persuadable. Even though he was powerful, he was very easily persuadable because he listened to his two RCs too many times when he shouldn't. I'm asking you, Christians, today, are you easily persuadable? Because if you are, why don't you make a pre-decision not to be? Let's look at our next cast, none other than Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti is such a phenomenal person. She's mentioned in uh, Esther chapters 1 uh, because the King Xerxes throws a massive banquet to celebrate in the nation. And so he calls in all the wise men and all the headmen of the nation to come and celebrate. And he wanted to show off his wife. But you know what Vashti had? She had another party on at the same time. And she was like, I ain't coming to your party. And so when he called for his queen so that he could show off her queen, she, she refused to come. She refused to show up. And because she did that, the two RC said, listen, nobody's going to accept your authority. So you actually need to get your house in order because you've just done this in front of the whole land. And so he actually says, I'm, she's no longer going to be my wife. And he actually axes her. They didn't actually axe her. But he, he, he just said, today you're in, tomorrow you're out. And so they made a call that Vashti was no longer going to be his wife. But you know what the funny thing about Vashti is? I think we can all take a lesson from her. Do you know what happened to Vashti? She changed her destiny when she refused to show up. Sometimes Christians, when you just got ability just to show up, so to get to church on Sunday morning or get to a serving team, you may lose your destiny just because you're not prepared to show up when God needs you to show up. I don't know, church, is there somebody here that needs to start showing up more? I remember a friend that ran two oceans. He was so nervous that he wanted to back out the night before. He said, no, he's got a tummy bug. Any of you ever done a marathon, you'll find a million reasons to back out. I was like, just get to the start line. 
That's the best advice he said he had ever got. Just got to the start line. You'll figure it out from there. Sometimes, Christians, we just need to get to the start line. We're trying to figure everything out ahead. Actually, just get to the start line. Don't be like Vashti. Show up. Mordecai. Come on, Mordecai is my favorite out of anything. Uh, none other that I reckon Adam Sandler would make an amazing Mordecai. I don't know about you guys, but Mordecai was a godly man. He loved. He was the cousin of Esther, and he actually brought Esther up, but a godly man. Do you know that when Israel was under uh, any sort of oppression, he would wear sackcloth, and he would cry out to God for the nation. He really trusted God. In this story of Esther, there's actually two heroes. You get a two for one. Because Mordecai is the, one of the heroes that was influential in Esther's life. Who's speaking into your life? Do you find influential people that speak into your life? I want to tell you something. When you're an influential leader, you may be a king that doesn't wear a crown, but you can still make a difference. You may be a queen that doesn't sit on a throne, but you can still make a difference by the influence that you apply to people's lives when you push them towards God's purposes. Haman, come on, henchman Haman, none other than, come on, Haman is the evil henchman, he's the bad guy in the story, and he he literally wants to wipe out all of the Jews, okay, Uh, he also struggles with a lot of things that maybe we can relate with, you see, um, Haman wanted power and title, and so even, he hated Mordecai, Because Haman wanted people to bow down to him as he walked through the streets. Mordecai refused to bow down to anybody other than God. And so Haman hated Mordecai and wanted him dead. Not only did he want him dead, he wanted the entire nation of Israel scrapped completely. And so the the thing about Haman is that he was insecure. He was jealous. He was controlling. He was easily threatened. He was manipulated all the time. He was tormented by his own demons, and he deviantly was clever. But I want to tell you something about Haman, is that when your enemy turns out to be the enemy of the king, the battle's no longer yours. The battle belongs to the king. I don't know about what in your life you are struggling with, that you believe that you have to fight the battle. I want to tell you, if Satan's coming against you, he's the enemy of the great king, and the battle doesn't belong to you. If his schemes will fall to nothing, because if your enemy is the enemy of the king, he has no ground. He has no power. Stop giving him the power in your life. I heard somebody's car got, wheels got stolen once and ended up on bricks, said, devil did it. I said, oh my hat. How does the devil put wheels off there? No. Somebody stole your tires. But you are making up too many things in your head. Look, the devil might have caused that guy to go and do that. But I want to tell you, the devil doesn't actually come against you just because he goes, I want to actually get Chris because he doesn't even know his name. You see, devil knows God's name, and he knows you're the most loved thing in God. And he knows that if he can get to you, he can get to God. His big thing is against God. But I want to tell you something, that he's an enemy of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the Creator of the universe, and he has no power. Jesus rendered his power nothing at the cross. If your enemy is an enemy of the King, that's the King's battle. Lastly, I want to just introduce you to our superstar, none other. But I thought Haley Berry would be an amazing Esther. I don't know about you, but I thought she would, if this was my cast, I would put the movie together like this. But um, Esther is a humble uh, orphan girl who gets adopted by her, her cousin Mordecai, who brings her up in godly ways. Um, after Vashti was told to leave, King Xerxes has a... Uh, um, 
a beauty competition to see who could be his new wife. And so Esther gets chosen and spends one whole year soaking in perfume to get prepared to walk before the king because your skin had to be perfect before you could walk before King Xerxes. She spent a whole year soaking. I want to tell you, if you want to stand before the king one day, why don't you spend a whole year soaking in his word, soaking in his presence, soaking in prayer, soaking in in whatever God's promises and purposes are for you because that's what it takes. Now we come to the story is that Mordecai goes to Esther because she's queen and they're in trouble. They were, Haman has, has put out an interdict. He's got the king to say that they're going to wipe out all the Jews and he wants to kill Mordecai. So he goes and sends a messenger to Esther and says, listen, I need your help. Uh, this is the message. But what Haman didn't know is that Mordecai actually saved King Xerxes' life because he had overheard two guards conspiring to assassinate him and he lets the king know. So the king had favor with Mordecai. Haman didn't know this, but Haman has this thing, you don't bow down to me, I'll take you out. How many of us are managers like that? You don't bow down to me, I'll take you out. You don't do what I sell, take you out. We can sometimes look at these henchmen and make them look like, but sometimes in our lives, sometimes we can make those bad decisions too. Maybe we're just decision fatigued. But long story short, Mordecai sends message to her um, and says this, and they're going to wipe out the people. And that's our scripture now, Esther chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. Then Mordecai told um, his servant to reply to Esther, Do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more um, than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent... At this time, relief and deliverance will rise up from the Jews from another place. I just want to tell you something. God wants to do it with you, but he doesn't have to. If you're not going to walk the things of God and what he's destined, he'll just get somebody else to do it. But he wants you to be part of the story. He wants you to make a pre-decision to be part of a bigger story. A small decision, big change. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for a time such as this. Mordecai says to Esther, listen, you are in this position of power because God has given it to you. But I reckon it's for this time. You have time to make a difference. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Um, Just before we get to that scripture, what had happened is they had sent a reply through and Esther couldn't come before the king Xerxes for 30 days. She had to make a request and wait 30 days. But Mordecai says, but we don't have time for that. By the time 30 days comes, there's a genocide. Israel will be wiped. The Jews will be wiped out. And so Mordecai puts a pressure on and says, you know, maybe you just need to be brave for a time such as this. Maybe this decision is going to change the life of others. And so then Esther replied to Mordecai, go gather up all the Jews to be found in Susan and hold a fast. I love that. Go to God first. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my young woman will also fast, and then, I love this, she makes a decision, she puts a due date in the calendar, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She makes a pre-decision. Four things I want you to get from this story quickly. One is we can see that we're better together. Esther took great counsel. I want to tell you, if you want to be a great person used by God, no matter how powerful or how important you are, if you can't remain teachable, God can't use you. A teachable spirit will continue to grow because it doesn't think that it knows everything. Not one of us is more intelligent than all of us put together. 
a leader that, that seeks the advice of and heeds the advice of other people to seek wisdom is a good leader. She also was humble, and you can see that humility is what set her apart from everybody else. What is humility? Well, it starts with your attitude. If your attitude stinks, you're never going to be set apart for the right purposes. You'll be set apart for the wrong purposes. We can change our attitude. You can make a predecision to have the right attitude for what God wants to use you for. And who knows that all of these difficult circumstances that you may be facing may be a setup for God to do something amazing. Because you may get called for a time such as this. Esther in chapter 2 verses 15 says, And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. When you're humble and you're a leader for other people, it will set you apart. People will find favor in it. You'll have a positive aptitude coupled with humility and a determination to lean on God. Remain teachable. And who knows, maybe God will use you for a time such as this. For a time such as in your community, your family, your school. Number two, Jesus at the center. We can learn to put Jesus at the center. You can see the first reaction that she had was to fast and pray. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, I'll remind you again. It said, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go to all the Jews that found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. And I, my young woman, will do the same. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I want to tell you something. Sometimes we can't press past our hardest part because we, we got our feelings in the way. Sometimes we just go, I just don't feel right. It doesn't feel right. I just, we're waiting for the right feeling to do the right thing. I want to tell you something. Esther pushed past her feelings into prayer. I want to encourage you, church, to push past your feelings into prayer, to put God first. You see, when you, the moment you push past your feelings and into prayer, you step into God's presence. If you ever want to step into God's presence, put your feelings aside and step into God's presence through prayer. The difference between a dream and a destiny is a due date. I love how she said, then I will go. She put it on the calendar. She said, I'm going to do this. Put God first, and then I'm going to go. I want to tell you something. If you make a predecision, to put a due date on what God is calling you to do, you put an expiry date on what the devil's plans are for you. If you want to put an expiry date on the plan, devil's plans against you, too many of us are trying to put the expiry date, but what we're not doing is putting the due date. We're not doing what God has called us to do. And when we pre-decide to do what God has called us to do, we put a due date on it, and the enemy's plans go expired. I want to tell you that there's a due date on racism in our country. There's a due date on hatred in our country. When we start to walk in the promises and the way of God. Number three, servant leader. She put her life on the altar. God is looking for people to serve. I want to tell you something. If you can't get into serving, you'll never get into leading because God only uses servants to lead. Do you have a servant heart? Esther in chapter 4, 16 said, If I perish, I perish. She had a servant heart. Number four, we're better together. In unity, they prayed and fasted. They had each other's backs. Teamwork will always make the dream work. And so the thing is that not only did Esther have the, the people's backs, the people had her back too. And so they fasted and they prayed. 
What's so funny is I'm going to get to the end of the story now and just kind of paraphrase it for you. But I don't know if you're getting this. Esther's predecision wasn't a big, a small, it was a small thing she had to make, but it was a big sacrifice. But she took the chance because she knew God's plans were perfect. She knew what God had in store for the Jewish people. And it was such a significant thing because she saves an entire nation from genocide because of a predecision. And this is the way it ends. She invites King Xerxes and Haman to a banquet where she persuades the king to let her people go and then to hang Haman. You see, Haman had actually set up this gallow to hang Mordecai publicly. But the, the, you know the, the, the gallow that was created to hang Mordecai publicly? The king turns around and hangs Haman there. Hangman, he got hung by his own thing that he had set up to destroy what God wanted to do. The king's command to kill the Jews was reversed, and the Jews, instead of revenge, uh, instead of being uh, wiped out, they actually had revenge. And today, the Jewish people, this is why we know this is fact, fact in history, that the Jewish people celebrate something called the Purim, which is the celebration of when God freed them from Haman. Do you know that 14.8 million Jews get together in March and they celebrate this? They remember, they commemorate what God did. And it all links back to a predecision to follow God, to see His things happen. I don't know, maybe there's something in your life, maybe there's something in your life that God's just saying, make a predecision. Maybe it could set you up. Years to come, your generation's generation can be blessed. You see, the story served as a great reminder that in the book of Esther, there's always this uh, theological talk that God's name is not mentioned in it. But I want to tell you something, that even when God remains hidden, unnamed, and seemingly absent, as in the book of Esther, you can detect His divine presence through His people. Because God will never bypass you as He reaches for people. Just a quick foreshadow just why the story is so important is that Esther is a behind the scenes look of the fight between the devil and God I'll tell you why I say this is because just as Haman plotted to kill all the Jews and wipe them out Satan plotted to kill Jesus and wipe out all the, the Jews wipe out all God's people but this is what's so interesting is the story ends the same. The very thing that Satan set up to destroy Jesus was the cross. <laughs> How cool is it that at the cross, he uses the very thing that was created to end him, to end Satan. He uses the very thing that he hangs on and says, forgive them, they know not what they do. And in that moment, Jesus beats Satan. Just as Mordecai ended up in the gallows that he had created, uh, Haman ends up in the gallows he created for Mordecai, so Satan ends up in the pits. Jesus can do anything. And Colossians 2 reminds us this encouraging scripture. He canceled the record of the charge against us. That's you. And took away it by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and the authorities. He disarmed Satan. Whatever he's doing in your life, he's been disarmed. He has no power. You can tell him to footsack. He then shamed him publicly by the victory over the cross. I love that. I'm going to close now. But before I do, I promised you that I would reread the scripture from the opening. And so I hope this scripture gives you a little bit more meaning. 
in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. You can make a pre-decision to show the others the goodness of God. For He called you out of the darkness into a wonderful light. Come on, I don't know, that's God gets all the glory. If we could bow our heads for a moment quickly, I don't want you to leave. You know, we're going to do a salvation call now. And what a salvation call is just to recognize that you want to choose Jesus. I don't know, maybe you've never had a relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you've had one, but you've kind of just, you kind of let the boundary line slip slightly. And you want to make a recommitment to Jesus this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. You see, salvation's loudest call was Jesus on the cross saying, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you feel that you have sinned, you're no different to the person sitting right next to you. The only difference is somebody has chosen to follow God. Somebody has made a pre-decision, the best pre-decision to follow God. Because God's not calling us to be perfect. He's calling us to be holy as we walk in His image and in the direction of Him. And if that's you and you want to experience that relationship this morning, or you want to make a recommitment this morning, I want to give you this opportunity. On the count of three, you just got to raise your hand and put it back down. And I pray if the Holy Spirit's stirring you now, be faithful. Don't use this as an acknowledgement to raise your hand in an auditorium. Use this as an acknowledgement to say, God, here I am. I recognize. So if that's you, one, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Two, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Three, if that's you, can you raise your hand? You could just pop your hand up. One of our teams are busy praying for you right now. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord God. We thank you for this moment. We thank you, Lord, that you are using us and that when we're available vessels, you work on us, in us, through the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that the victory is already won and we give you all the glory, God. Lord, we recognize that we are sinners, fallen short. But we want to turn from that, Father God. And I want to ask you to enter into our hearts, Lord. Transform us, change us from the inside out so we may serve you for the rest of our days. And if you said that prayer just one more time, you can put your hand up as an acknowledgement to God. And while we say church, amen. Come on, can we give Jesus a round of applause? If you said that prayer, we're going to have a salvation room set up for you just where it says grow track. There's going to be a salvation door open there. If you want prayer for that, please follow through there. We've got a team that wants to love on you and care for you. Any of you need prayer in this time, you can come to the front and we'll have our prayer team set up. Otherwise, God bless. Look to the person next to you and say, see you next week. Come on.